0: Today is uh, Pentecost Sunday that was mentioned a little earlier. And it's uh, seven Sundays following Easter that marks and celebrate the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 1 to 4. And so while we're shifting our focus this morning away from our series that we've been doing, Critical Questions, uh, we should note that what we see in our scripture today highlights many of the same themes that we observed with Jesus' encounter with the lame man in John 5 last week. And this theme just is woven all through Scripture. Today's passage focuses on Philip. And Philip is a follower of Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus who is empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. And he is carrying out the mission of Jesus to someone on the margins of the religious environment, to an outsider. And while the Holy Spirit's work in the kingdom of God encompasses many, many areas, areas including salvation and sanctification of making us in the image of Jesus, of of the giving of personal gifts and corporate gifts and so on, the work of the Holy Spirit in the kingdom is so vast The focus of Pentecost Sunday for Pentecostals is the role of the Holy Spirit in empowering the followers of Jesus to carry out the mission that Jesus has given us to carry out. And so Pentecostals, for those of you who may not be familiar uh, with anything other than the fact that we're sometimes a little weird, okay, we're most often weird, no amens on that? We can be. That the Holy Spirit comes, we believe that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the life of a person at salvation. We believe that. And we believe the Holy Spirit continues to work in the life of the believer, shaping them in the image of Jesus. We believe that. But Pentecostals see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost as a second experience after salvation for the purpose of power for witness, power to carry out the mission that Jesus called us to. Jesus said in Acts eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of people who were empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish God's mission. That of things that God had called them to do at a specific moment in time. And all through the Old Testament, we see these examples. Moses longed for the day, he said, when all of God's people would be empowered by the Spirit. Joel chapter 2, he prophesied that the day would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, men and women, young and old, that this occurrence would mark the Joel says, in the last days, the day between the coming of the Messiah to earth and then the second return of the Messiah, the time in between. And so what we see here in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 that we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday is the fulfillment of that promise of the outpouring of the Spirit on all believers. Now, it's important for us to see that the empowering by the Holy Spirit leads to to carrying out the mission of Jesus with the anointing of the Holy Spirit on our lives. Now, our scripture today is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for reading that this morning. It's already been read, but I encourage you, open your Bibles, your apps, whatever, follow along today and uh, we're, as we look at this passage together. We're going to start by looking at uh, Philip, were first introduced to Philip in Acts chapter 6. There's an issue in the young church. There are Greek Jews, which means there are those who were Greeks who converted to Judaism and then later became followers of Jesus. And then there were Hebrew Jews, of course, who grew up as Jews and were always Jews and then accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So both of these groups. Coexisted in the early church. And so they're in this congregation in Jerusalem. The Greek Jews felt that their widows and orphans were being treated sort of as second class citizens. They were being treated differently. They were overlooked by the church and they were given less care, in their opinion, than the Hebrew Jews. And this was primarily in terms of food in the feeding program that they had. And so the apostles were told had a meeting. And it's obvious because of the decision they made that they must have believed that this was actually happening because they decided that they would appoint seven people which they called deacons, seven deacons to oversee and be responsible for the fair distribution of food in the congregation. What this would do was make sure that the people were properly cared for, everyone equally cared for, but it would also make sure that they could continue to focus on their primary work, which was preaching and teaching, knowing that this important area was being looked after. Now, the criteria to be a deacon, to be one of the seven selected, we're told, was they were to be full of the Holy Spirit, in other words, empowered by the Spirit, and of wisdom. Now, what this means is that They're they're empowered by the Spirit, and in their lives, there was evidence demonstrated that the Holy Spirit had given them a unique level of, of wisdom as they carried out their lives and ministries. And so Philip, we're told, is one of these seven deacons that was selected. Now, I want us to note that there are only details in the book of Acts given about two of these seven, Philip and Stephen. So we know that Philip was a follower of Jesus. We know he is a part of the Jerusalem church. We know that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and that is demonstrated in his life with this unique wisdom and he is now a deacon. In Acts chapter seven, the chapter before our, our scripture this morning, we read about the other deacon, Stephen. And Stephen is speaking publicly And he's accusing the religious leaders for being responsible for the death of Jesus. And so as they're hearing him say these things, they become angry at him. And in the middle of this, Stephen has a vision from God. And in this vision, he looks up and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so, Stephen not only has this vision, but he shares the vision with the angry mob about what he's seeing in his vision, specifically that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Well, the religious leaders that are angry in this moment become more angry because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And to declare such a vision as being from God, in their opinion, was blasphemy. And so they had Stephen stoned to death. Now, the result of this is we're told a great persecution broke out against the church. And it was, re- it was led by a young man that you may recognize named Saul, who later became Paul. Mobs went house to house, pulling people from their homes, taking them off to prison simply because they were followers of Jesus. It was fierce persecution. The enemy desired to destroy this young church. We're told as a result, the believers in Jerusalem dispersed to different areas, leaving only the disciples, the apostles, to remain in Jerusalem. The persecution led to further proclamation as these believers went to other areas that they would not have gone to otherwise. And so in Acts 1.8, as we've referenced this morning, Jesus promised that they would have power to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now in Acts 1.8, because of this persecution, they are now pushed out into these areas. It was the point in the story that these things, that life became uncomfortable for the apostles, for the early church. Because now the Holy Spirit was working in a way that they were being led to places and led to people that were outside of their comfort zone. Their beliefs, their theology, their practices were being pushed to the limit and challenged now as the Holy Spirit is leading them. And here's Philip, this deacon, this spiritual man in the church, one of seven who were selected. He finds himself in Samaria of all places. The Samaritans were rejected. They were seen as unclean. They were to be avoided at all costs. And here's Philip being led by the Spirit to this restricted area And he traveled from place to place, we're told, preaching the good news of Jesus. And the result is people were being saved. People were being healed. People were being delivered. Philip was leading a revival. Now from there, in this little series, this section in Acts, we see that things got comfortable, and we're going to talk about it more with the eunuch. And it got really uncomfortable with Peter's vision and then visit visit to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile, which was launching of the full embrace of Gentiles as followers of Jesus. All of these people groups were outside of what the early church would have been comfortable accepting as Jesus' intention for the mission, but these are the very people that the Holy Spirit, through this mass persecution, is leading believers to. Secondly, we have the eunuch. We're not told his name, but we are told some important things about him. We're told he's from Africa, Ethiopia specifically. Now, Ethiopia today and the geographical boundaries of this day were different. At that time, Ethiopia included southern Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia as we know it now, so it was much bigger. He's a eunuch, which means he's castrated and was common. In these times, for those who served royalty to be castrated because they often were responsible to oversee and care for for harems, and so it was a common practice. We're told he was a member of the royal court, and he's in charge of the treasury of the kingdom of Ethiopia. He has a very high-powered, significant job. In Ethiopia, it was a kingdom of queens, And it was rare in this time period uh, because in most countries it it was male regals, but they were one of the exceptions. And the regal is referred to here as Candace. This is not a proper name. Her name wasn't Candace. It's the same as saying the Caesars or the Herods or the pharaohs. She was one of the, you know, she was a Candace. And the eunuch would have had significant authority and wealth as he served and represented her In her kingdom. Now we're introduced to this man as he's returning back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. And we're told that he was in Jerusalem for a specific purpose. He wasn't there on business, he wasn't there uh, as a representative in government proceedings. He was there to worship. He was there to worship. And obviously, he's come to Jerusalem because the temple is there and it is the center of worship. In Israel and for Jewish people. Now, non Jews who worshiped at the temple were defined in one of two ways. They were either God fearers or they were proselytes. Proselytes were people who were not born Jews, but they fully converted to Judaism and all the practices and rites. God fearers, on the other hand, were those who they were interested in God, they worshiped God, but they didn't and were not willing to convert to Judaism. The law of Israel actually spoke against being a eunuch, and so because of that, eunuchs were not allowed to worship at the temple. And so it appears that this man is a godfearer because he's a eunuch, and uh, and because of his his situation, and so because of that, he would have been contained to at least the the outer courts or perimeters, if at all, get close to uh, the temple. He would have to worship on the exterior, on the margins. He wouldn't have been permitted to worship with the other worshipers. Can you imagine that he traveled all that way, all the way from Ethiopia, only to be told, I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to have access to the worship area. You have to stay out here on the outside fringe. Well, not to be deterred, he set out for home with his own set of biblical scrolls. That in itself is significant because people, individuals didn't own the scrolls. They belonged in the synagogues and in the temple and only the richest of people could own them and he has his own. And he's reading the book of Isaiah and so he has these scrolls that are very expensive to buy and he's he's looking through these scrolls and reading them. What's important to note is that this man has limited knowledge about God. He has no knowledge about Jesus, but he has an incredible hunger to be drawn to God and to worship God. The third is the Holy Spirit. Philip is having a great ministry. He's content with what's happening in Samaria. Who wouldn't be? I mean, he could go to district conference in a few weeks and brag about all the salvations, healings, and miracles and make the rest of us pastors look really bad. Common practice today. He's experiencing a revival, an incredible move of God. And because good things are happening, crowds are gathering, we're told. I mean, this would not have been an easy environment to leave. But God makes sure that there are, there's no question about what Philip should do next. And so he sent a messenger, an angel, to speak to Philip, and the messenger said to him, Philip, I need you, we need you to leave Samaria, and you are to go to the road that leads to Gaza, you know, the road that's in the desert, barren area, that's where we need you to go. It's interesting that the word go here means to continue the journey on which one has entered. Philip was asked to leave the large crowds in the city behind to go to the desert that is desolate and uninhabited. This is not a random, purposeless request. Philip is on a journey. He is serving Jesus. He's empowered by the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. And this is where the Spirit is taking him. His journey began in Jerusalem. It's taken him to Samaria. And now it's taking him into the desert. What we learn from Philip and what Philip demonstrates is that the journey, where the journey leads is not the issue. The issue is the one who's leading the journey and it's the Holy Spirit. The man was kept from discovering God at the temple but what I love about this story is he can't get access to the temple so God meets him in the desert on the road. And immediately, Philip left the crowds for the desert wilderness. Why? Because God was asking, and the Holy Spirit was leading. When Philip arrived, he saw a chariot traveling along the road, and it says that the Spirit prompted him, stay near, Philip. In other words, what it means is, glue yourself. Stay with them. Stick with it. And so Philip did. And as he obeyed the Holy Spirit's prompting and he got close to the chariot, he could hear the man reading Isaiah 53 out loud because it was common in these times to read out loud. And so Philip responded to the Holy Spirit's leading in the moment and he asked him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, no. How can I understand this if there's no one to explain it to me? I I don't understand it. And he invited Philip into the chariot with him to explain to him what he'd been reading. And the Holy Spirit's timing was perfect. The man was reading Isaiah 53 about the one who suffers for the sin of others, not his own. The eunuch couldn't understand this. Who would do such a thing? Was it the prophet writing about himself? Was he writing about someone else? Who would do that? And we're told that, Under the leading and anointing of the Spirit, Philip shared the good news of Jesus with him. Philip's anointed anointed teaching about Jesus found its way right into that searching eunuch's heart. They came to some water. The language here suggests that this was unexpected. It's the desert. The last thing you expect to find in the desert is water. It's like, oh, there's water. And the eunuch said, well, there's water, let's get baptized. And Philip said, no, you haven't done the six-week baptism course yet. You can't do that. That's a requirement of membership. (laughs) Look, there's water. And Philip confirmed that the eunuch believed in Jesus and he baptized him. And we're told the eunuch is rejoicing and having accomplished his mission, we're told that, Philip, I mean, you talk about weird, is carried away by the Holy Spirit 20 miles to the north. I would like to travel like that some days. It helped me get places a little quicker. And it says that they, there's no indication that they ever saw each other again. Well, it's a great story, and I believe it has two applications that I want to draw from this morning. The first is the Holy Spirit and discomfort, As we study the book of Acts, we see multiple examples of an early church struggling with the baggage, the baggage of a lifetime of set beliefs and what the Holy Spirit was asking of them as they're carrying out the mission of Jesus. Time and time again, they find themselves in an uncomfortable context with how to minister practically in in this context as the Holy Spirit is leading them and their personal beliefs and practices seem to be in conflict with the Holy Spirit. What they want to do, what they're comfortable to do, is, is, is conflicting with what the Spirit wants to do. And so they had to wrestle through a lot of things. And, and I love reading this part about, in, in the book of Acts because they're having to wrestle with, well, Gentiles are getting saved. Jews have to be circumcised and do we force the Gentiles to be circumcised? Well, that, that was the first church conference trying to figure out what to do with that. And then there's meat offered to idols. I mean, these pagans who are becoming followers of Jesus who are being filled with the Holy Spirit are eating filet mignon that's laid at the temple and being sold for half price on the corner. What do we do with that? They didn't know what to do with that. And here's Philip, he's going to the Samaritans. It says that when Peter and another of the the apostles heard, they went down to check it out. Right? Samaria. Accepting that God viewed the Gentiles as clean, that Peter is having this vision of all of these unclean foods, and God says, I want you to eat, and he's like, I can't eat that, that's unclean. And God says, don't you call unclean what God has called clean. And then being astonished that the same experience of the Holy Spirit that he and the others had, he's now observing in these Gentile people who are responding to Jesus. Their ideas, their theology, their practices were crumbling in front of them as the power of the Holy Spirit is changing lives. I want us to make no mistake, we can't gloss over the book of Acts, make no mistake, that life was very uncomfortable for the members of the early church because the Holy Spirit was making them uncomfortable. So we see it in the early church. Well, at the turn of the century, with the birth of the modern-day Pentecostal movement, which today the PAOC is celebrating 100 years, we trace our roots back to October of 1900 and to a person named Charles Parham. Charles opened a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas with 40 students. Curriculum was the Bible. Teacher was the Holy Spirit. And you graduated when the teacher thought you were ready to go. I can tell you there would be a lot of parents today very hesitant sending your kids to that school. I don't think they were OSAP approved. I just don't think so. Prior to leaving for a revival campaign, he gave his students an assignment. He says, I want you to study the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and I need you to come to a conclusion and determine whether you believe that what you see in Acts chapter 2 is relevant for today and what would be the evidence of such an experience happening to a person in the time that we live in. Now, it's important to understand that Parham himself had not experienced what he was seeing in Acts chapter 2, had never spoken in tongues personally, and so he went off. And so the students are studying. They're praying about Parham's assignment. And then a lady named Agnes Osman. She asked the other students, can you guys, we're here talking about it, we're studying that, but can you guys pray for me that I would have this experience? And so students laid hands on her and prayed for the Holy Spirit to come upon her. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And hers is the first recorded historical moment in the modern-day Pentecostal movement of this experience. Well, within a year, the Bible school was shut down, and Parham moved from Topeka to Houston, where he opened a number of churches, as well as another Bible school. William Seymour, who was a black holiness evangelist, attended the school. But because he was black... He wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom with the white students. Hmm. So he sat in the hallway hearing about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He's invited by a black Nazarene group to come to Los Angeles to preach in their church. And when he preached there, he preached what he had been learning in the hallway of Parham's Bible School about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the members of that church mostly were very uncomfortable with his preaching and they, uh, they locked him, literally locked him out of the church. And so they moved their meetings to a home of some Baptists at 214 Bonnie Bray Street where people were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what I love about this, this is, uh, this is one of the earlier pictures. I want you to notice what you see. White, black, male, female children, all joined together in a community, all together, all were filled, and they grew so much that they had to move to a new location because they are growing, 312 Azusa Street. Interestingly, Parham didn't support Seymour. Seymour made Parham feel uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable that this black preacher was having so much ministry success on Azusa Street. In fact, it preached against him. The uncomfortable Azusa Street revival launched modern-day Pentecostalism. The roots of the Assemblies of God in the U.S. are tied to Azusa Street. The roots of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada are indirectly tied to Azusa Street. The Four Square Gospel tied... and many other Pentecostal denominations. I was recently in Cuba at their national office. Their first two general superintendents, incidentally, were women who came from the Assemblies of God in the U.S. and formed the Assemblies of God in Cuba, and that story goes on and on and on. Now, up until the 1960s, sorry if you don't like history lessons, But up until the 1960s, those who were interested in Pentecostalism and experienced for themselves the baptism in the Holy Spirit, they would leave their churches and join the Pentecostal church at great cost oftentimes. But the 1960s marked the beginning of the charismatic movement. And something different happened this time. This time, people didn't leave. They stayed. And Pentecostals became very uncomfortable With this. Imagine these people played cards and bingo. They smoked pipes and drank alcohol. The women wore pants, earrings, and makeup. Big deal in Pentecostalism in the 1960s. Yet, they were experiencing the same Holy Spirit. And Pentecostals, very uncomfortable. The point from history is this. We need to be prepared to be uncomfortable if we're going to be filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit tears down stereotypes, removes boundaries, destroys false thinking, and pushes us out of our comfort zones. Jesus' ministry made religious people uncomfortable because he went places and engaged the very people they avoided. The Holy Spirit pushes our comfort level because he takes us places to engage with the very people that religious people avoid today. There's nothing new in history, folks. We're just repeating the same stuff over and over in a later generation. The point is this. Prepare to become uncomfortable if you really want to experience the empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. I was thinking early this morning, sometimes Spirit empowered people are uncomfortable, not about what's happening in their own lives, but what's happening in the world around them. And they're very uncomfortable as they see culture going in directions and things happening and they're, they're uncomfortable with it. That's not the discomfort I'm talking about. The discomfort I'm talking about is the discomfort in you as the Holy Spirit is pushing you to live and to minister in ways and to people and in places that in your mind you determined was not for you. Secondly, Pentecost is personal. There's no question that the Holy Spirit impacts and shapes our corporate gatherings. I wouldn't want to be here on Sunday if if he didn't. When we come together as the body of Jesus and we worship, the Holy Spirit impacts and shapes our corporate gatherings if we invite him and allow him. Now, while this is a very important aspect of our faith, we cannot lose sight of the individual impact of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As followers and believers in Jesus, we all have a unique story, a journey of faith of how we got here in our journey with Jesus. We've come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different education, different cultures, different hardships, but we're all here. Now, sometimes in the context of the church, it seems like we're determined to make everybody the same, the same. But the strength of the work, and as we see historically, is that the Holy Spirit creates diverse communities because diversity is our strength. God has promised to personally save us, personally fill us with his Holy Spirit, personally enable each of us to reach others for him, And sometimes, like the apostles and the deacons and the early church members, God allows difficulties and challenges, hardships, even persecution to come into our lives in order to lead us where He wants to take us so we can accomplish what He wants to do in us and through us as individuals. Now, it's important for us to come to the understanding that where the journey leads us is not really the issue, it's who's leading the journey. That's the part we've got to get right. Who's leading the journey? And it needs to be the Holy Spirit. So every day, our prayer should be one of desire and commitment to be available, to be used of God as the Holy Spirit leads us, despite what's happening in our lives. Right in the midst of the storm, we're praying that he would lead us. If we're willing to commit to the journey the Holy Spirit is faithful to empower us and lead us along the way. His timing is perfect. He will arrange opportunities for us to speak into the lives of others. And as the Holy Spirit leads us to people, we should assume that God is already at work in that person's life before we meet them and seek to be led on how we should engage them. He'll show us what to do. He'll give us what to say. He'll direct us when to act and when to hold back. Because he knows exactly what's happening in the person. A few weeks ago, I was preaching a sermon on Sunday morning in a church in Cuba. It's the same sermon I preached here a few weeks earlier, yet I did it without the video with the swearing in it. And, uh... I'm going to give some of you a moment for that. And I'm preaching this sermon and I made a statement. I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm relentlessly trying to encourage these people and, and, and tell them that God is faithful and God keeps his promises and never give up and God, God's going to do what God promised. You know, I'm, I'm doing this. And, and all of a sudden, I just feel prompted in that moment to share a personal story. A personal story about where we are as a family right now with, with Jen's health And we don't talk a lot about that from the pulpit other than to ask you for prayer and to keep you updated because we don't want life in this church to be about us. We want it to be about God. So we don't talk about it a lot. And so I'm sharing this, and as I'm sharing it, I just felt prompted by the Spirit. You know what? This can sound like empty words. You're saying God is faithful and God is good and he keeps his promises. Tell him some of your story. So I did. I shared a bit about our story. And what we're facing and going through and and the emotions attached to that and the realities and how God has been faithful and, and all of these things. And I wanted them to know, listen, I'm not just, this is not just lip service. I'm living this, people. I don't know why at that moment, I didn't know why I felt prompted to do that until after the service. See, what I didn't know is there was a lady in the congregation who some months ago was diagnosed with stage four cancer and was told, you only have a short time to live. And she was invited by one of the ladies in the church who was her neighbor to come to a ladies event and she heard about Jesus and she made a decision and she went home to her husband and she said, listen, I only have a few months to live. But I want you to know that I want to live those last months as a follower of Jesus. I want Jesus to be the priority in my life. So what that means is... I'm going to go to church every Sunday. Now, I know that's not been a part of our lives. You don't believe. uh, You probably won't support that. But I just want you to know that I'm going to die. And I'm going to die knowing Jesus. And so he said, okay. Well, what I didn't know is that he was in church that morning. I didn't know that. And at the end of the service when we gave an invitation for people to surrender their lives to Jesus, there were six people, young and old, who decided to give their lives to Jesus. I'm convinced it's because there was no swearing in the sermon. I I just think that's what it was. Six people. But what I didn't know is that one of them was the husband. Why? I'll tell you why. Why? He said, until that man told that story, I thought I was the only person in the world that could relate to what, what it is like to have a wife who's dying of cancer. And when he shared his story, I realized I'm not alone. He gets it, he understands it, and he has faith in God, and I want that too. I didn't know he was there. I didn't even intend to tell the story, I didn't even intend to tell it this morning. He'll show us what to do. He'll give us what to say. He'll direct us when to act because he knows exactly what's happening in that person. Because most of the people that Jesus wants to reach are never going to be in this room. They're going to be on the go train and in the community and in your neighborhood, and other places, and God is relentless to reach them through us as we're living out our lives. We could be the answer to someone's prayer. How many times have you, like me, said, God, my family won't listen, or they live 2,000 kilometers away, or, or whatever, I need you to bring a stranger into their lives to accomplish what seems to not be accomplished. Well, there's a flip side to that prayer. It's you living your life. You don't know who that is that you're interacting with. You could be the answer to someone's prayer. Because Pentecost is personal. So often, one of the things that's happened in the Pentecostal context is that we've become so enamored with the emotion and the experience of the Holy Spirit that all we want to do is stay inside and have crazy things go on that make us feel better and then go out and try and survive a week till we get back. Any experience with the Holy Spirit that doesn't better equip you to live the mission is not in a genuine, authentic move of the Spirit. I'm sorry. We don't need to spend days and hours praying for a move of God. We are the move of God. We're the move of God. This is the move of God. As people empowered by His Spirit live out their lives every day. Pentecost is personal. I'd like to invite our worship team to make their way back. On this Pentecost Sunday, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit desires to empower us so we can effectively live out the mission of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will lead us to people and places that will inevitably make us and others uncomfortable. Like, you know, I don't live in the dungeon. I know that My openness to where the Spirit wants to lead me these days makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Confession, it kind of gives me a little joy too that people are. We must be prepared to become uncomfortable if we're going to live out the mission of Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants to lead each of us uniquely, not waiting for the church as a whole, but uniquely as individuals, as we commit ourselves to be used of God, to impact this world for him, to live out kingdom life, to see lives miraculously changed. And you can bring your story, because I'll tell you, the greatest asset that God has ever used in my life to touch anybody has never been all the years of theological training and how much I think I know and how many conferences I've attended its all the crap that could technically be a swear word right there all the crap that I've had to live out in my life has prepared me more to live the mission than all of the theological training and ministry experience put together so if your life's been tough you're especially gifted to be used of God You're especially gifted to be used of God. Would you stand with me this morning? Our worship team is going to lead us. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. You may be here this morning and you want prayer for whatever is on your heart this morning. I want you to know that we'll pray for you today. And I just pray that you would, in these few moments, use this place as a time to be quiet, and hear the voice of the Spirit. Listen, I've been a Pentecostal for 53 years, plus womb time. We're loud people. In fact, we're really uncomfortable with quiet. If it goes quiet for a while. We feel the need to fill the air and the space. I jokingly say that Pentecostals are going to be really uncomfortable in heaven, because I read in Revelation, there was quiet for 30 minutes. I'm thinking Pentecostals wouldn't have been able to survive that. And these moments are moments where we can quiet our spirit and hear the voice of God and hear what God is saying. We sung about that earlier, hearing the voice of God in our lives. He just might be saying something to us to make us really uncomfortable, to challenge our boundaries and our comfort zones, and to stretch us beyond and use us beyond what we could ever imagine. If that's what you want today, I encourage you to seek him as our worship team leads us. Lord Jesus, take that declaration today as the sincerest desire of our hearts. We believe your word this morning. that says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever surely your goodness will follow after me will run after me seek me out Lord you are good and we declare your goodness this morning and Lord once again today we surrender afresh our lives to you we surrender everything about us the good painful we surrender it all